morning again. If we haven't been introduced yet, my name is Dave Werns. I have the privilege of serving here at Grace Fellowship as the Director of Missions and Mobilization. And this morning, I also have the honor of opening up God's Word with you as we continue our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, we're picking up in chapter 5, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you have your app, you can scroll there. But if you're just now joining us, I want to give you a, a little bit of an overview of what to expect from this unusual book. Ecclesiastes is basically a, a gritty, no-holds-barred grappling match with the hard, uncomfortable realities of our lives in a fallen, broken world. The author is King Solomon. He takes an honest look, sometimes a, a brutally honest look, at the everyday lives of ordinary people. And he addresses our various pains, our problems, the the struggles, the suffering that normal people face on a daily basis around the world. Not only that, but Solomon also points out the various sources of refuge and, and relief that we all seek out, those places that we run to automatically to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And we see at every turn, Solomon is frustrated by the limitations that God has placed on our lives just by making us finite human beings. Over and over and over again, King Solomon concludes that all of our activities, the good, the bad, the pleasant, the painful, everything we do is just as pointless as trying to catch your breath with your hands. Or worse, trying to chase down a fall breeze on foot. It's a whole lot of effort with nothing to show at the end. And it can sound pretty dark at times, right? But Solomon, he's not just some crusty old killjoy that's trying to make everybody else in the world as miserable as he is. I almost sometimes wish he was that guy because he'd be a lot easier to ignore if he was. Kind of like your neighbor that, that keeps on sharing those helpful facts about how it's supposed to rain all weekend. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate that. Or how that crack in your driveway just keeps getting bigger. What is that? Hmm. Or maybe you have that uncle that's just full of useful trivia that he likes to bring out at family gatherings about how things like, uh, how funny it is that beach season neatly corresponds with hurricane season. Oh, isn't that funny? (laughs) Thanks. Or how technically we're closer to the end of summer break than the beginning. Hooray. And for the record, if that's you, okay, if that's you, just... Come on, man. <laughs> Just knock it off, okay? We're, I mean, we're all going to still have plans this weekend, and we'll get wet. And yes, we're all going to keep going to Florida, and a, and a Category 5 hurricane only happens once in 100 years. So we're going to roll the dice. And no, we're not going to start our summer reading list, because it is still summer. I have time. <laughs> anyway, Solomon. Solomon is not that guy. Solomon is not that guy. He is more like a surgeon, He's more like a deliberate surgeon who is cutting away at the layers of self-medication that we keep applying to our lives so that he can reveal the source of the infection, right? The human heart. 
And here in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, we see that our church, even God's own people, are not immune to the futility and emptiness of life under the sun. So would you read along with me quietly as I I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Solomon says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing is evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This word of caution in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1, it's very clear. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Solomon is telling us, be careful. Caution, warning. Watch your step. Unfortunately for us, these kinds of warnings, they become so commonplace in our culture that they've, they've almost lost their meaning. And I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that wants to get back to the good old days, back before, you know, seat belts and, and bike helmets made us all soft. I'm not, one of those, I'm not one of those guys that believes you can't trust a man unless he's lost at least one finger or toe. Like, what I am saying is that my daughter is going to have a very different understanding of safety than I did growing up. I grew up on a, on a working vegetable farm. My grandfather was a farmer like his dad was before him. And let's just say that our HR department was not exactly OSHA compliant. We had tractors, we had mowers, we had machetes, we had hatchets, pulleys, ladders, chains, every kind of flammable substance you can imagine. Basically, it's a little boy's wonderland. <laughs> but it's definitely not safe. And it's not that we had no rules. Okay, there were plenty of words of warning. There, were, there was a lot of caution that was recommended. It's just that the delivery was usually so understated that sometimes I'm amazed I ever survived. Because usually it would go something like this. My dad, he's, he's just a quiet man in general, but he means what he says. And so when he puts me on the riding mower, before I put it in gear, he would say, now, be careful on the hills. Remember, that's how Mr. Darby died. <laughs> Gas cans in the garage when you need it. And off we go. And, and, and he got it honestly. Okay, right? His dad gave it to him. And so my grandfather, when he'd fire up the old hay baler, he'd yell back, watch your sleeves. That's how Earl lost his arm. Noted. Thank you. That's how I learned about all the dangerous things. Snapping turtles, shotguns, hornets, you name it. Watch out. 
I didn't always listen. I didn't always heed that warning. I will, I will never forget my first real scar. It came when I was about four years old. And my dad was using a hatchet to cut up some cobs of corn to feed the, the cows. It was cold, so he's moving fast. I, I remember just how strong and how confident he looked. Just cutting him up, not even looking at what he's doing. And I know that he definitely warned me not to touch the hatchet when he put it down. But naturally, as soon as he turns his back, I grab the hatchet and slice my finger to the bone. I will never forget the feeling of panic as I'm squeezing my finger with all my little four-year-old might just waiting for my dad to come back into the shed for more corn, and this realization, this is what he warned me about. And I was fortunate. I came away six stitches and a story, right? I have a great scar. But friends, the warning we see in Ecclesiastes Chapter 5, verse 1. This is not something we can afford to ignore. Because even the prospect of losing a finger or a hand or an arm is nothing compared to facing the wrath of an almighty God. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, watch your step when you come to the house of God. There are very real dangers and very real consequences associated with foolish worship. And if our time through Ecclesiastes up until now has revealed anything to me, it is that I am not the exception here. This warning is for me. It is for us. So would you join me in asking God for his help this morning to heed his warning against foolish worship? Father God, we love you, and we need your help. We want to obey your word. We want to watch our step as we come to your house, but God, we need your spirit to illuminate our eyes, to unstop our ears so that we are not destroyed. Would you help us today, Father? Amen. I'm so grateful that God, through Solomon, didn't just give us a stern warning about foolish worship. He also gave us some very practical help on how to navigate, how to avoid being a foolish worshiper. And we see in this passage at least three very specific behaviors that normal people, like church people, 
all of us need to be on guard against. In your outline, number one, we need to watch our step around religious routines so that we don't engage in meaningless gestures. That's what Solomon's talking about in chapter 1, or verse 1, chapter 5, when he says, the sacrifice of fools. See, Jewish culture, Jewish life, was organized around a complex system of sacrifices. Some of them were mandatory, some of them were voluntary. Some were meat, some were grain, some were wine. Some you boiled, some you roasted, some you burned up completely. Some were daily, some were weekly, some were annual. Others were only on special occasions. More of them were as often as necessary. There's too many to list, and so we're just going to look at one category of sacrifice, this mandatory daily sacrifice that we see in Numbers chapter 28. The Lord commanded a daily sacrifice of two male lambs. You do one in the morning, one at twilight. And there was a a grain and a wine offering that went along with each of those lambs. And on the Sabbath day, you doubled it. So there's four lambs and more grain and more wine. And it happened every day, twice a day, each day, no matter what. Friends, that is the very definition of a religious routine. But how long do you think it would take before that religious routine loses some of its meaning. Even for the guy who's getting the blood and wine on his hands. How long before he forgets, why am I doing this over and over again? Let alone the guy who's at the back of the system, right? Who grows the grapes to make the wine, to make the offering every day, twice a day. Or the little boy who's mucking out the sheep pens? How long before that helpful reminder degrades into a meaningless gesture? A generation? Maybe a few years? More like a few weeks? And so clearly, clearly, it makes sense for God to give a stern warning to the Jewish people about the dangers of turning religious routine into a meaningless gesture. But that's not us, right? We're we're new covenant, right? We We don't have sacrifices. Do we even have religious routines anymore? You tell me. How many of you knew more or less what to expect this morning before you ever left your house? Maybe you didn't know the exact playlist, right? But you knew you you would probably be singing. You probably knew most of the words to most of the songs. Or at least you weren't surprised by how many we sang. For most of us, Sunday morning is almost as predictable as those morning sacrifices were for the Jewish priests. Think about it. We, We all park in the same spots. We all sit in the same seats. We all shake the same hands. Right? The only thing that really changes is the hair in front of you gradually gets thinner and grayer. That's it. Right? Maybe you appreciate a new, a new haircut, two rows in front of you. But if you're far enough forward, nothing changes. But it's not just Sunday morning. 
Our giving is automated. Our Bible reading is programmed. Our prayer times are scheduled. Right? It's before meals. It's before bed. And it's the last 17 minutes of community group every week. It's just how that goes. Please don't hear me say those things are wrong or bad. Don't hear me saying we should stop those things. Routine is not our enemy. Don't forget, God himself invented that system of sacrifices. Our world has rhythms and routines baked in from the very beginning. Genesis 1, morning and night. He made the tides. He made the seasons. He keeps the planetary orbits in line. Our God is a God of order. But please do hear. Just doing the things for the sake of doing the things will not make you a worshiper of God. You can read your Bible. You can pray before bed. You can support our missionaries. You can serve in the children's ministry, even host a community group. I hope you do. But if we're just doing the things because they're the right things to do, friends, Ecclesiastes tells us we are fools. Or worse, we may be actually participating in evil. I know that might sound a little extreme to some of you. But it's not an exaggeration. Jesus himself gave us a very similar warning at the beginning of his ministry. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew in in chapter 7, Jesus is talking to some of the first people to ever hear him in the Sermon on the Mount, and he ends it in verse 21 by saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Folks, as a man who earns a living by routinely performing religious activities, these warnings hit particularly close to home. I said it before, I will say it again. Religious activity is not the problem. Routine is not our enemy. Most of us need more routine, not less. But be careful. Watch your step. We cannot afford to let those routines, those mandatory daily rituals, degrade into meaningless gestures. Foolish worship may be the most dangerous activity in the created universe. I wish, I I wish I could just skip ahead give you guys all the good news now. But I'm afraid it gets a little worse before it gets better. So brace yourselves. We're going to have two more warnings. I don't know if I could be gentle. So I'm going to try to be quick. Let's go to to number two. The second behavior 
that Solomon warns us about. When it comes to foolish worship, it's filling our mouths with mindless words. Look down at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. He says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, this idea of guarding our tongue or or watching our language is probably not new for you. We know to watch out for things like gossip and slander, lying, cursing, hurtful words. But it doesn't seem as though Solomon is particularly warning us about those kinds of potential sins of the tongue. It sounds more like Solomon is warning us about pace and quantity. He says, do not be rash, that's speed. Do not be hasty, that's pace. A fool's voice has many words, that's quantity. In the world of biblical counseling, one of the first verses that many people encounter is Proverbs eighteen thirteen. It says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. I like the New Living Translation. Uh, it says it like this, spouting off before listening to the facts, that's both shameful and foolish. And that, that right there is solid helpful wisdom for any life circumstance, not just the counseling room. Because the temptation to just fire off an answer or a critique or some relevant piece of color commentary on our circumstances, it is almost irresistible and virtually universal. Just one example Like many of you, I have recently dipped a toe into the colorful world of pickleball, meaning I've played once, I've become immediately obsessed, and I've been watching YouTube videos nonstop ever since. So after watching dozens of of whole tournaments on YouTube, I started to notice one of the deciding factors of who would win is the ability to control the pace of the match. Because at some point in every match, regardless of skill level or age, an opportunity will present itself where a player can send a hard, fast shot across the net. But only the most skilled, disciplined players are able to return that shot without matching the velocity Or worse, adding to it and accelerating the pace of that volley. That reaction is not unique to pickleball. That's in a lot of different sports. In fact, that principle applies across most human interactions, from the playground to politics. Maybe you've felt it yourself. doesn't matter if you're talking to the CEO or a lowly customer service rep. When you know you're right, that urge to just let her rip, it's 
almost overwhelming. Friends, I'm afraid the solid biblical teaching that we receive here at Grace Fellowship, combined with a culture of speaking the truth in love to our neighbors, as blessed as we are to have those, it leaves us particularly vulnerable to this danger of a hasty word before God. He's given us the truth of His sovereignty. He's given us the confidence in His Word, the hope that we have to offer hurting people around us. We've trained and practiced to spot lies and schemes of our enemy. And as these are wonderful blessings for our church and, Lord willing, our community, it does come with a word of caution. Take Romans 8.28, for example. It's familiar if you've been here for a while. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Amen. Hallelujah. And I think for our people, the danger is less about twisting that precious truth into some perversion of the gospel, some prosperity message. For us, the danger lies in having that precious truth locked, loaded, and on such a hair trigger that we stop thinking about what we're actually saying. We know it's true. We know you need to hear it. So we let her rip. And the faster I can get it out there and convince you, (laughs) the sooner we can move on to other things. And friends, as terrible as it is to mindlessly spout off the precious truths of God's word towards other people, How much worse to do that same thing to our God. Consider when he providentially delivers a hand-picked, custom-made, personally tailored set of circumstances to your life. Oh, how quick we are to fire right back with our own ideas of how he should improve those circumstances to better suit our preferences. Or how often we use prayer as nothing more than a convenient way to bookend meetings with other Christians. Or what about the way we naturally default to asking God for the very best possible, imaginable outcome for any circumstance we find ourselves in without even pausing to consider. Again, it's not that we ought not ask Him for His blessings, for His favor, for His special provision, for His traveling mercies, His hedges of protection, but friends, we cannot expect God to receive our worship when we mindlessly say his words to other people or our words to him. Again, in the 
Gospel of Matthew, Jesus spoke out against religious leaders of that day. This time in chapter 15 when he says, You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So what about you? I sincerely hope you pray. I sincerely hope you speak the words of Scripture to the people around you, but when you do, is it mindless chatter? Are you just filling the space? Be careful. Watch your step. Why should God be angry at your voice? Number three in your outline, third behavior that Solomon warns us about, watch out for empty promises. In the ancient Near East, which is where most of the Bible took place, vows were really quite common. Typically, a vow is a way for ordinary people, normal folks, to draw on the resources of the powerful in their region. It didn't have to be financial. A lot of times people made vows to God or even, even kings trying to get a, 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 up, a leg up on some military endeavor. Another example, a woman named Hannah vowed before God that if he would deliver a son to her, she would give the son back to God. That son was named Samuel, the kingmaker. Now, I don't know that too many people here at Grace Fellowship are trying to bargain with God to improve their circumstances. If that's you, knock it off. But for the sake of time, I want us to focus on a different kind of vow. If you're listening to me today and you consider yourself a Christian, well, that means that at some point in your life, you made a commitment to God. That's awesome. But... Since all of us are probably feeling a little uncomfortable already, I'm just going to go for broke. (laughs) When you became a Christian and made that commitment to God, do you know what you committed to? Do you remember? What specifically did you commit? I'd wager a lot of you actually do remember. I would not be surprised if a lot of you Remember exactly what you committed to God when He saved you. And so for that crowd, I have to ask another one. How are you doing with your commitment? Are you paying what you owe? Let's make it super specific. If you say that you're a disciple of Jesus, are you learning to live like Him? Are you doing the things Jesus did? If you say that he is your Lord, well, are you obeying his commands? Are you depending on him for your resources? If you say that he is your father, well, then do you love him? Do you honor him? Do you please him? And friends, if you have made no specific commitments to God, 
Or worse, if you did make specific commitments to God, but now you have no intention of fulfilling those. I think there are some very serious implications to that. Paul takes it to the extreme end with a similar warning in his second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Just to clarify, when Paul says he remains faithful, what he's talking about is God remains faithful to himself. That means he can't just let promise-breaking slide. God is a righteous judge, and so one day, every debt will be paid, one way or another. The bill always comes at the end. And my hope here today is not to cast unnecessary doubt on anyone's assurance of salvation. But instead, I want all of us to take a very careful look at the quality of our worship. I don't want anybody here to land in the scenario we see in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Friends, the stakes could not be any higher. And so we absolutely must take these warnings seriously. Remember, these are warnings for everyday, normal people, people like us. We are not the exception here. And it is sobering to think of how likely we are to engage in foolish worship. It's practically inevitable that we would behave in at least one, if not all of these ways. Meaningless gestures, mindless chatter, empty promises. Either we just did it, we're about to do it, or God help us, we're doing it right now. The reality is our worship just does not measure up. That feeling right there, that, that sigh, that heaviness that kind of makes you slump a little in your seat, that feeling is what drives Solomon to use this word for vanity, for chasing the wind. It's the same word, and he uses it 38 times across 12 chapters. Vanity. And I hope by now you are starting to see that Ecclesiastes is not about removing that sigh. 
It doesn't teach us how we get out from under that weight. And if you came to Ecclesiastes asking, how do I reduce this discomfort I feel? Solomon, teach me how to get rid of this heaviness that I feel when I look around me at this world and my place in it. Friends, you are likely very disappointed. Because the question we need to be asking is what does it look like for a man or woman of faith to live inside that tension? How do I live in faith underneath that uncomfortableness? And friends, for that question, Solomon has some very helpful answers. He gives us some incredibly practical wisdom here in chapter 5, not just how to navigate around foolish worship, but how to truly worship God in a world that is still mostly under the sun. There is a process for moving from foolish worship to true worship. And the first step towards true worship that we see here is to acknowledge God's Holiness. God's holiness is not merely one of his attributes. It is the sum total of his being. His holiness is the very source of his glory. Other things might be considered holy. Cups or or sacrifices or, or tablecloths. But they are just distinct and separate from other things that are like them. God is different. His holiness is different because there is literally nothing like him. He isn't made of atoms. He's not made at all. He's not some combination of smaller parts that join to make a larger whole. He's not granular at all. The Lord our God is one. He's not bound by space or time or energy. He has no limitations at all. God is not simply a larger, stronger version of us. He is not like us at all. He is something else entirely, and we cannot even begin to imagine how fundamentally different God is from us. There is nothing in existence that is more alien to us than a holy God. Because anything you can dream of or imagine is based on something you've seen or experienced. And friends, no man can see God and live. He's the very definition, the source of anything good or beautiful that has ever existed. He is unchanging, unending, unapproachable, and unknowable. And we will not have the humility necessary for true worship until we acknowledge a holy God. The prophet Isaiah is one of the most vivid encounters that we have in Scripture about God's holiness. He describes it in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up Upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the whole house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost. Nobody needed to tell Isaiah to watch his step. Nobody needed to warn Isaiah about hasty words or about empty promises because when Isaiah encountered the holiness of God, the only response that made sense was humility. So friends, if you are struggling to draw near to listen, if you are struggling to let your words be few, if you are struggling to pay what you owe, allow me to suggest, perhaps you need to take a closer look at the holiness of your God. God is in heaven. And we must see him there. We cannot reduce him down to a more manageable size. It is killing our worship. So the first step towards true worship is acknowledging God's holiness. But the second step towards true worship that Solomon points out to us is acknowledging our limitations. Friends, the very fact that we need to be warned about a potentially dangerous situation just highlights how vulnerable we really are. It's the student that needs to draw near to listen, not the teacher. It's the people who need help that make vows, not the powerful. We are the ones at risk of losing everything our hands have made, We are the ones who live on earth. But folks, that is exactly the way that God designed it. Our limitations are a feature, not a bug. And when we try to hide or mitigate our limitations, it actually neutralizes our best opportunity for humility. And it undermines our attempts at true worship. Because the fear of God and humility go hand in hand. A clear view of God's infinite perfection will also highlight my glaring insufficiencies. And just like Isaiah said, right, the longer I stay in the throne room of a holy God, the more obvious it becomes to everyone, I do not belong there. My sin, my weakness, my foolishness, my smallness, all of these put me in very real danger of being utterly destroyed, overwhelmed by the purity, the perfection of a holy God. And when we see God as truly holy, the only only appropriate response is humility. But when we humbly acknowledge our own limitations in light of that holiness, 
The only appropriate response is fear and trembling. If I could be just very transparent for a moment, I am deeply concerned about this part of the message. I'm concerned because the unfamiliarity we have with holiness may interact with the familiarity we have with unhelpful fear. And those may lead us someplace very dangerous. So I'm going to take a small step back, and I want to try to paint a picture that I hope will be helpful in bringing our fear and God's holiness into view. Would you imagine with me a small lake, more like a pond. And a little girl that lives near this pond is given a canoe. It's just her size. And she learns to love paddling around her little pond. And this little girl is strong. She's smart. She's brave. She's a natural on the water. She's made for this. And she is thriving. Now imagine that this little pond, it's really just a sheltered cove inside a larger bay that itself leads out to the ocean. And one day this smart, brave, strong little girl paddles confidently around the corner. And she is struck by the beauty and the majesty of a vast open sea. She's read books, she's seen pictures, but this, this is so much more. And she is enthralled. She falls immediately in love with the sound of the surf, with the the feel of the salt on the breeze, the curve of the horizon. She has never felt more alive than this moment. And so boldly she paddles on. Minutes pass, maybe hours, who knows? She's beyond the sight of land when the wind picks up. And for the first time since leaving the safety of her little pond, this little girl considers her position. She's in a well-built canoe that she's very familiar with, but it's not made for blue water. She's skilled, but she is far outside her experience or training. She's brought no communication equipment. She's brought no navigation tools. She brought no food, no water. She has experienced some storms, but never on the water and never alone. The sky gets darker. The sea gets darker. The waves get larger. And this little girl has never felt so small or so helpless. And a wave comes over her canoe. And the first forks of lightning rip across the sky. And the little girl is afraid. 
friend, you are that little girl. And just as it is right and good for her to love the sights and the smell and the feel of the wide open ocean, it is right and good for you to draw near to a perfect, holy God. But also, like that little girl, our foolishness, our finiteness, our sin, it puts us in very real danger. And the only difference between her and you is that the sea neither knows nor cares about this little girl. The ocean could destroy her, and it would mean nothing. But God not only sees you, He knows you. And He knows you completely. Your weakness, your foolishness, yes, even even your sin, and still, He loves you more deeply and more completely than you could ever know. And because of that, He will not let you be destroyed. And He will not simply remove you from His dangerous presence. But He can't reduce His own holiness, and so He chooses to do something unimaginable. He joins us in our canoe. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And this is our last step towards true worship. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection must lead us to celebration and gratitude. And some of us have consistently struggled to maintain an attitude of thanksgiving or to even engage in heartfelt celebratory worship. My own life, these past few years have been some of the most challenging in regard to joy-filled worship. And I don't know if this is the only remedy, but it is one of the few that are explicitly described in Scripture. God is the one we must fear. And you might say, why does it have to be fear? Friends, because we will not appropriately celebrate or give thanks for the work and person of Jesus Christ until we recognize how afraid we should be without him. Romans 7 lays this out perfectly for us. Paul describes this tension that he lives in between the new man and the old man, and he lands it in verse 21 where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the path towards true worship lies in holding on to these seemingly opposite truths. God's perfect holiness means that any trace of sin will guarantee my destruction. So I must definitely be afraid. 
But Christ's perfect sacrifice means that my sins are forgiven and I'm acceptable in God's sight. And so I absolutely can be confident in His presence. But my weakness, my foolishness, it means that even my best attempts at worshiping God, at pleasing Him, are offensive. And so I should definitely be afraid. But Christ's perfect life, his sacrificial death, his eternal advocacy. They overshadow all of my efforts, and so I absolutely can be pleasing to God. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Holding these truths in tension, it demands a lot of effort, time, and energy. There is very little else that you can make room for but it will force you to watch your step. You will not easily engage in meaningless gestures, foolish chatter, or empty promises. And who knows? You may even start to enjoy doing what you were created to do, to know and love God. Let me pray and ask for his help in doing that. Father, we love you and we are not nearly as afraid as we must be. Will you help us Not just to put off foolish worship, but God, to truly walk the path of true worship. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need your help. So we ask, would you save us? Would you keep us? We're trusting you. Amen.